0: Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. We are still in the Lord's day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. There have been a number of events that we've dealt with since the time that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. It was the most eventful Passover that the Jewish people had ever celebrated. They didn't know this at the time. They came into the city as they always did for three of the major festivals, Passover being one of them. But on that week, The beginning of that Passover week as Jesus is entering into the city on that foal of a donkey and the people were laying out palm branches out before him and probably many of them not realizing what was being done. They began to cry out the words of the psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the week began as it always did and Jesus himself had prepared the disciples for Passover. He had a place And he had all of the elements of Passover ready. And on that night, the night of Passover, John gives us chapters 13 through 17 to describe one night. We see now how eventful that night was for the 11. Because on that very same night, Judas Iscariot left to betray his Lord. And Jesus spent the most intimate time with his disciples, preparing them for what was to come in hours. Not days, in hours. And he spoke to them of his coming again. He spoke to them of his of his father. He spoke to them that he was going away, that he was going to go, but he was going to be at the right hand of his father. And he wasn't going to leave them comfortless, and he wasn't going to leave them fatherless. He was going to send his comforter, the Holy Spirit. But if you can agree with me, that was a whole lot of stuff that they were given by Jesus. And at that time, and in that night, it was very hard for them to process all of it. And as they left, he continued to speak to them as they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we know that in the Garden, after his great prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, comes Judas and the mob to arrest Jesus. Eventful. They take him, they try him unjustly, uh, illegally, at night. They beat him. And then they take him to Pontius Pilate in the day. And of course we know how long it took for Jesus to go back and forth between the people and, and Pilate and Pilate to the people until finally, even though Pontius Pilate had declared Jesus innocent of any crime, he nonetheless scourged Jesus, beat him, allowed his soldiers to put a crown of thorns on his head, continued to mock him and call him the king of the Jews. He threw a purple robe that I'm sure quickly turned crimson for the amount of blood that Jesus had expelled. And then, of course, he was taken to the cross. and he bore the crossbeam until someone was pulled out of the crowd to help him take it to Golgotha to Calvary's hill. Where there he was crucified with two thieves and died. And was taken by two members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, placed in a tomb that belonged to Joseph. And for safety's sake, the Jewish religious leaders made sure that there was a large stone over the tomb that would have a Roman seal and a Roman guard. That was an eventful day the day that Jesus was buried. But on the third day, early in the morning, Jesus rose again. I know I mentioned this last time, but I'll mention it again. Some people have wondered about the stone being moved. Was it moved so that Jesus could come out of the grave the fact is the stone wasn't moved so that Jesus could come out the stone was moved so that we could look in and see that he wasn't there that he was alive now that's a lot of, that, that, that's a lot of eventful stuff but the day's not over Mary Magdalene had gone. Found out that Jesus' body had been moved. She didn't realize. She she continued to believe that he was dead. Goes and tells Peter and John. Peter and John run to the tomb. They look inside. They they don't see anything or anyone. And they run and and take off and they go home, wondering whether to believe or not. John did believe. And Mary wept. And Jesus appeared to Mary. And that's where we left off. It was quite an eventful day for Mary, which we looked at last time. What's interesting as we begin the next portion here of our text in verse 19, that we're in the same day, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. What Jesus said when he appeared in their midst was shalom. Shalom. More than just peace. More than just a greeting. As we shall see. And when and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. Shalom. As my father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So, as I've been saying, we know how amazing the earliest part of that day, the first day of the week, Sunday, had to have been in relation to all that had taken place that eventful Passover weekend. All that we kind of went over here just a few minutes ago. There there was so much dramatic stirring taking place among a whole host of groups and communities, especially those who could be classified as our Lord's enemies. You, You see, it wasn't enough that Jesus had caused this great uh, consternation and alarm amongst the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and, of course, the Sanhedrin council. But I'm sure that uh, there was great displeasure expressed by that whole group due to the apparent defection of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. See, we have to dig a little deeper into what was going on that day. Add to this what could only be considered a a terrified Roman guard having having to testify of angelic beings. A gigantic stone that was moved. And a tomb quite empty, all under their watch. Watch. They couldn't tell any stories. They had to tell the truth. The fact of the matter is, they had to tell the truth all at the risk of their own demise. And once again, we'd have to consider Pontius Pilate receiving reports of, reports of all, the, the, all the strange happenings and, uh, that began there at Golgotha and spreading throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. And, and, and just remember this, that, that they didn't communicate then like we communicate today. Things had to spread by word of mouth. But it certainly was going throughout the whole city. And not just that day, but all the way back to everyone remembering... That it was this Jesus riding the foal of that donkey. And then certainly Pontius Pilate had to have felt the effects of the earthquake. Who couldn't? You can't isolate an earthquake of, great, uh, of, of some great power that would open up tombs. And not affect all the rest of the region. And then there was the report by the centurion of all the things that he had seen, a report that he had to give, and then possibly include him in his report, and according to his own observation, his conviction that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Included in any or all these reports was the news of that broken seal. Not to mention the suspicious account of the chief priests that the lowly, scared disciples had stolen Jesus' body. Talk about fake news. (laughs) And as to the condition and expectations of, of the disciples, fear obviously reigned among them. Even reports of Jesus' resurrection were taken by some as purely hearsay and hence untrue. Think about this. Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 16 for just a moment. Mark 16 verses 9 through 13. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week. Now I want to emphasize the first day of the week. We see this in all the gospels. Emphasized. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. They didn't believe Mary Magdalene. Now, we need to understand something. Let's not pick too, too much on, on these disciples. But one thing is for sure if there was going to be any kind of eyewitness testimony in the, in, in the Jewish community of that time and within any of their uh, uh, um, investigations of, of, of sorts, a woman's testimony would not be taken, a woman's testimony would not be accepted. But the the disciples should have believed her. She was a follower of Christ. She was a believer. She was one who had been touched greatly by Jesus, as we saw last time. So they didn't believe her. And after that, he appeared in another form unto two of them. More than likely, of course, the the two men on the Emmaus Road. As they walked and, and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. They they went back to those who, who, uh, the other disciples, neither believed they them. And they they were men. So it tells you where their hearts were at. Keep your finger here because we're going to come back to the next verse later. Not now. But the disciples were still themselves reeling in shock and grief over what they considered as the swift end of all of their hopes. They realized because they were somewhere nearby, but they they knew of the speedy trials and the execution. They knew of the swift death of Jesus. They knew of the hasty burial, which had left them with nothing but shattered hopes and broken dreams and broken hearts. Mary's news to them was simply nonsense. And yet most of them gathered. Most of them gathered together in the evening in what, what we know as the upper room. More, more than likely that uh, same upper room where the, they had uh, partaken of the Passover supper with Jesus. Where they lodged there in Jerusalem. And more than likely just a few weeks later, a couple of weeks later. Well, about 50 days later. They would be gathering once again waiting for the promise of the Father before Pentecost. And going back to our text in John 20, verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, so the same day at evening, it had not become yet the next day. Remember, evening to morning. So at evening, close to evening, same day, Sunday, being the first day of the week, Emphasis, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Shalom, peace be unto you. Now, not one of the Gospels gives us all of the various appearances of, of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples after his resurrection. Actually, all of the Gospels together do not give us every such appearance. Because we're told in Luke, or I should say we are told by Luke, in the letter that he wrote on the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As he begins this letter, writing it to someone named Theophilus, he says, the former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now look at verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Being seen seen of them forty days, and and, and what, what is implied in this is that he was seen at various times, at various places, with various people, whether all together or individually, but being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And how interesting that in that time frame that Jesus would continue to speak of the kingdom of God. He wanted them to focus on where they would be going beyond this life. That's something good for us to realize the importance of prophecy, the importance of what we are being told in the scriptures about where, where, where we are today and what's happening in, in the world today. And we need to be quite aware, Jesus taught us, the apostles taught us, the prophets taught us that in the last days perilous times would come. We're living in those days today. I don't know that the, the times have been as perilous as they are. But what is beyond that but the kingdom. That's where we're headed. Now, it's also quite significant that there is an emphasis on that first day of the week throughout the first half of this, this chapter, from verse 1 all the way down through verse 19. This draws an important distinction, and I'm going to spend some time on this, so bear with me, but this draws an important distinction between the Jewish Sabbath and the Lord's day. Because while some people call Sunday the Christian Sabbath, Sunday in no uncertain terms is not the Sabbath day. We know that the seventh day of the week, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, honors and observes God's finished work of creation. This, of course, is biblical. This is, of course, something that was given from the very beginning. Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, Shebi yom is the seventh day. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day, yom, from all his work which he had made. And God blessed Barach, the seventh day, he blessed it. And he sanctified it, Kodash. He sanctified it. He set it apart. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. That's the Sabbath day. Now, what we know called the Lord's day, primarily what we learn from the New Testament, but what we now call the Lord's day, the first day of the week, That's today, Sunday. Commemorates Christ's finished work of redemption. And we can call it the new creation. So there's creation tied to both days. Now how significant it is that the creator God worked for six days and then rested. Compare that to the fact that the the son of God, God the son, suffered on the cross on Calvary six hours... And then he rested. After he said what? No, that's not what he said. Boy, what timing. Man, I didn't set that up. (laughs) When he said, It is finished. And he gave up the ghost. It is finished. And he was buried prepared and buried and on the third day he rose again the lord's day the lord's day beyond the sabbath let's remember that when the lord gave us the shabbat the sabbath to israel it was as a special sign that they belonged to him it was given as a special sign that they the Children of Israel belong to him. Let's begin with Exodus chapter 20. Now now please, I'm I'm not taking on a rabbit trail. This is important to our study. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law. And it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, keep it set apart. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Shabbat of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger, that is within thy gates. Now who is he speaking to? The children of Israel that came out of Egypt. The nation was born in Egypt, wasn't it? Came out, they're out here at the Sinai, and he's telling them not even their cattle or even the strangers that may have come out you know the uh, people that were not uh, of the children of Israel but then he says for in six days and, and he repeats this for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the Shebiom, the seventh day wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it set it apart made it holy If you go to chapter 31 now of Exodus, it gets more specific. In verses 12 through 17, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also now to whom? Unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily, my Sabbaths, my Shabbats ye shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. Now, I tell you, that's, that makes it serious, doesn't it? God is serious about this with his people. In particular, the children of Israel. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, you you know what the underlying thing is here is that he's expecting obedience. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Shabbat of rest, the Sabbath of rest, the seventh of rest, holy, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Second reminder. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Shabbat to observe the Shabbat through their generations for a perpetual, perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Do you see who it is? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, the nation and the people of Israel were to use that day for physical rest. They were to use that day for physical rest and refreshment, both for man and beast. Now, under careful examination of the scriptures, it was not commanded as a special day of assembly and worship. I mean, you obviously were to worship God every day. That, that you can't take away. God is to be honored every day. But he was to be honored by rest. There's a picture in all of this, you see. Under the scribes and Pharisees, though, much later on, all sorts of restrictions were added to the Sabbath to make it a day of bondage and not a day of blessing. Even to this day, if you go to Israel, as we oftentimes do, and and I hope we can go again before the the Lord Jesus comes, but, uh, you know, and and, and hopefully next year, a year from this month, I'll talk about it more later. But when you go to Israel... They they have these uh, on their on their uh, telephone wires, you know, on their, their telephone poles, uh, these colored uh, uh, lengths of of uh, of uh, cord of, of some sort to tell you this is the only, this is as far a distance that you can walk on the Sabbath, and, and and that's there for people to see so that they don't walk beyond that length of cord. That's bondage, folks. That's not freedom. It was a day of rest. But they built so many laws around the law. So many little things around it. That it was no longer something of spiritual understanding. And so, is it any wonder that Jesus deliberately violated their Sabbath traditions? Notice I said their traditions, not the Sabbath. Jesus truly honored the Sabbath day because he gave the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. So, lastly, let me just simply say that the Sabbath was indeed associated with law. Six days of work then you rest. But the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is associated with grace. Because it deals first with this, faith in the living Christ. Coming to faith in Christ Jesus. And then, it's followed by works. You see the difference. Six days you work, seventh day you rest the Lord's day you rest in the knowledge that Christ is Lord and you receive him and then from your salvation you begin to produce good works the works do not save you works will never save you we are saved by grace Through faith in Jesus Christ. So getting back to the disciples in the upper room. There was this issue of fear that needed to be dealt with. They they were naturally afraid that the Sanhedrin might at any moment discover where Jesus' followers were hiding. And begin proceedings against them. Not only for being followers of Jesus. But for the bogus charge of taking Jesus' body from the tomb. I mean they had a lot to be fearful. Fearful. And by the way, those who had not hesitated to murder their master weren't likely to hesitate to attack them. And they feared that too. And so the doors were firmly shut, as the text indicates. The words used for the doors were shut. I mean, these things were shut. They were barricaded. They were locked in. Man, I mean, they they just weren't going to let anybody in. And by the way, it's interesting also that they were more afraid of their fellow Jews than they were of the Romans. That tells you something. So consider one moment they're, they're alone in the room. What do you do when you're locked in a room? <laughs> well, they probably prayed, you know. They... But what else could they do? No ESPN? Okay, I just want to see if the sports people were awake. One moment they're alone in the room. The next moment, there he is. Because nowhere do we find in the Gospels that Jesus went up to the door and knocked on the door and said, hey, let me in. And somebody on the other side said, who is it? It's Jesus. Prove it. Didn't happen, did it? No, they were so fearful. Fearful. At the moment of their greatest fear, Jesus appears. Jesus comes. Isn't that a wonderful thing for us to know? That when we're dealing with our greatest fears, Jesus comes. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the very end of the world. I'm going to be with you. Now, he'd rather that we not fear. How many times does he come and say, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. But he knows us and he knew them and they were afraid so he comes and and obviously he came into the upper room in a very unconventional way to say the least but here's the thing his resurrected body was not bound by the laws of nature that tells us something about who Jesus was and is and will always be but what is more remarkable is that they were afraid that they were afraid when Jesus comes and says, Shalom! Ah! By the way, we are told in another gospel that they thought he was a spirit. That's why they were afraid still. What's more remarkable is that they were afraid after even being told. The women had reported to them that Jesus was risen. It's possible that the two Emmaus disciples had also given their testimony of seeing Jesus before this. And it is also very possible that Jesus had already appeared to Peter according to Luke's gospel. So is it any wonder that Jesus would reproach them later in Mark 16 verse 14. Which I told you keep your finger there. And look at the next verse where it says afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. In, in essence, he, he gently rebuked them for that. But here in our text, Jesus' first words to the disciples was Shalom. We would say that this was the common greeting among the Jewish people, but it's also the common greeting in the Middle East. The Arabs would say, and do say, Sa'alam, Sa'alam. Same meaning, Shalom. But how much more meaning did this salutation have coming from the lips of their precious Lord? We have to remember that he had been to Calvary. He had been to the cross. He had been on the cross. He died on on the cross. And it is there on the cross that he made peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace by the blood of his cross as the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20. When he says, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. Now understand that that phrase fullness and and, and that all fullness dwell has a very similar meaning to the word in the Hebrew shalom. Because shalom means may you be blessed to the fullest. May you be abundantly filled by God. May you be whole and complete by God. So that's an interesting thing that it, it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell in Christ. And having made peace. Shalom, the word in the Greek, of course, is eirene, E-I-R-E-N-E. If your name is Irene, your name means peace. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, he made peace through the blood of his cross. And that peace reflects the understanding that when we were not in God and not in Christ we were at war with God. And when there is this battle that goes on between us and God and we're trying to win the war. We're trying to win the war by wanting to have our way our flesh in charge. But when God conquers us as he did Yaakov, Jacob. He blessed him. And he blesses us. And when two factions finally are settled in in the fact that one defeats another, what terms do they agree upon? Terms of peace. That's the term here he made peace through the blood of his cross because now God has conquered us and we surrender to him but he doesn't execute us he blesses us first of all he says die to yourself daily now and I'll live in you and he makes us new You're therefore a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Remember the words of Jesus to his disciples before going to the cross. He was preparing them for this. And again, there was that overload, you know, that they had heard so much from Jesus. But in John 14, 27, he said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peace, I leave with you. Shalom, my peace. Would God's peace not be greater than any peace that man could ever conjure up? So in effect, when he tells them, Shalom, peace be unto you there in that room, this is what he was saying to them. In effect, he was saying, it's been done. It's been accomplished. I have endured the sorrows of the cross for you. I have made peace by paying the price for sin with my blood. And now that peace is yours. Enter into the peace and enjoy it to the fullest. My question to you today, and I won't ask you many questions today, even though I ask you questions all the time. The fact is I may ask you more questions later. But my question for you today is this. Do you enjoy the peace which has been made By the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you enjoy it today? In spite of what the world says, what the world does, what the world thinks, in spite of what we have to deal with every day in this life, do you enjoy the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you do. I hope you do. Think about what Paul said in Romans 5, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, being justified by faith. If you are justified by faith, that means you didn't save yourself. You've accepted the work that Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Therefore, you are justified. By faith, your faith. We have peace, notice, We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. I've spoken of this many times. That we don't sit around saying, oh, I just love the the tribulation. I just love, you know, the affliction. No, we don't love it. But the fact is we can glory in it. How? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also because we know that tribulation worketh patience. In other words, tribulation produces patience. And patience produces experience. And experience produces hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, Do you all remember when you were without strength spiritually? It was because you were dead spiritually. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That was who we were. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That takes care of this idea or thought that any of us could save ourselves in one way or another. That we had any good part of of, of our salvation or that we had any part uh, uh, because we had some good in us that we helped ourselves into salvation. No, we can't help ourselves into salvation because we were dead. And Jesus made us alive. Not by works of righteousness which we have done as he told Titus. But according to his mercies he has saved us. And only a God who knows us in our worst conditions. Can save us to the best of his conditions. Not ours. And let us not forget the full effect then of his love toward us, which is the next verse, verse 9. Much more then, being now justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And this brings to mind the number of times that I've spoken about salvation being something that is past, something that is present, something that is future. The past is when the scripture says, we have been saved. The present is we are being saved, and we shall be saved, as it says here. That is the full extent of what salvation is. It is not just, you know, boom, just one-time thing. Because in the minds of some people as well, I, I, I said a prayer for salvation 35, 40, you know, 70 years ago. And, uh, but, but, you know, and I've done all kinds of things since then. So it was from that one prayer, you know, but did it really change your life? Because salvation, when we understand it biblically, we are being saved in our salvation. And we will be saved at the end. Because of what Christ is doing in our lives as we are surrendering every day our life to the Lord. So, understand then that Jesus is our peace. And Jesus alone is our shalom. He is our peace because he's the Prince of Peace. We're coming into the Christmas season, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that time and again we're going to hear a, a, a song from, from, from Isaiah 9, verse 6 that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, or the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He's our peace. Because he's our prince of peace. But there's not much peace. Getting back to those disciples. There's not much peace if you think that you're seeing a ghost. As Luke records in Luke 24 verse 37. And you can look it up. But here in in John's gospel. Jesus quickly dismissed any such notion. By showing them his hands. And his side. Tangible concrete evidence of his resurrected body. Look, it's me. In fact, in another gospel he says, go ahead, touch me. Go ahead, I want you to know it's me. Getting back to our text in verse 20 now. Bet you thought we weren't gonna go through this passage, we are. Verse 20, it might keep us here a while, We might be meeting our brothers and sisters from 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 eleven o'clock service. John twenty verse twenty. And when he had so said, shalom, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad. (laughs) They went from afraid to being glad when they saw the Lord. He was real. Well, guess what? He is real. He truly was their Lord. Guess what? He truly is our Lord. He truly had conquered death. He was alive. He was solid. He was substantial. He was real. And the disciples' transformation was immediate. They were glad when they saw the Lord. And they recognized him. You ever had that... that Experience where you, 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 you're you in the middle of, of something that just is, is just a, a terrible or just an upsetting kind of experience or a, a, a little issue that's going on. But then it just gets resolved immediately and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, you know, this weight is lifted off of you, you know. It's hard to explain because we've all experienced it in, in many different ways, but that that's exactly it. They were so afraid. Then all of a sudden, oh my God, a spirit, you know, oh. Oh, it's me. Don't be afraid. Shalom. Oh, (laughs) Lord, it's you. So no matter what then, getting back to them, there was no reason to fear now because of Jesus. There was no reason to fear the Jewish religious leaders any longer. There was no reason to fear Pilate. There There was no reason to fear the Romans. In fact, they had no reason to fear any man. Jesus was alive and living and with them. Uh, Let me ask you, is Jesus alive and living and with us? He is because he said he would be. They also now knew what Jesus meant when he said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He truly was the way to God. He truly was the truth of God. He truly was the life of God. They, they now could look back and say, wow, he is the way to God. He said it himself. No one cometh unto the Father except by me. And it all hinges on what he did on the cross, from the grave, out of the grave, and now in their presence. In him was life. And he had actually come that they might have life and that they might have it more Abundantly. And as much as his peace was triumphant in all situations, Jesus' peace is triumphant in our service as well. Because you need to take the next phrase, verses 21 to 23 of our text, where it says, Then said Jesus to them again, Shalom, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, there are those who would say that when he breathed on them this, that they were born again themselves. Possible. But let's continue on. Because he says in verse 23, whosoever, notice there's a, you, you have to say it properly. It's not whosoever. He says, whosoever sins, you remit. Now, here's an interesting word, remit. In, most, in some of your translations, it says forgive, and that's exactly right, because when it talks about remission of sins in the scriptures, it's talking about the forgiveness of sins, as we'll see in just a moment. So he says, whosoever sins ye remit or forgive, they are remitted or forgiven unto them. And whosoever sins you retain or you don't forgive, in other words, they are retained, they're not forgiven. And you're saying, wow, that's a lot of power Jesus was giving. Understand this. He wasn't giving them power. We're going to get to the root of this real quickly, but he wasn't giving them power. And as apostles, you have to remember one thing. Thomas isn't there. The next verse, by the way, verse 24 tells us Thomas wasn't there. And he would be one of the ones that would also have to receive this particular thing if, God, if he's giving them something, right? Right? So uh, we'll get to that next time. So the disciples now that were, were now becoming G- uh, uh, Jesus sent ones, he, they were becoming those who would be sent out by the Lord, commissioned by him as he had been commissioned by the Father. They, they would be carrying on the work that Jesus had begun. And so the Lord would enable them by breathing on them and saying unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, in, in Genesis 2 verse 7, we're not going to go there, but in Genesis 2 verse 7, the Lord breathed life into the first man, Adam. And in both Hebrew and Greek, the word that is used for breath also means spirit. And so the breath of God in the very first creation meant, as it meant physical life then, and the the breath of Jesus Christ in the new creation uh, meant spiritual life. But the believers would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit later at Pentecost, and they would be then empowered for ministry. So this new spiritual life that they received from Jesus was in anticipation of the day of Pentecost. Because he is saying, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So that's the the context. So the real issue for us is to be found in verse 23. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Jesus was not giving his disciples the right to forgive sins and let people into heaven. There are denominations today... That, uh, that uh, say of their of, of their ministers or priests or whatever that they have that power and authority to absolve sin, none of us have that authority, none of us have that power because he wasn 't setting his disciples aside as some sort of spiritual elite to deal with the sins of the world don 't forget again that thomas was was missing, and there were actually others in that upper room with a ten the reality the reality. Is this, the, the, the real necessity for us to understand is that the disciples did not and do not provide forgiveness. They proclaim forgiveness. We can proclaim forgiveness. We have the authority to proclaim forgiveness and that on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that the believer in Jesus Christ can do is announce the message of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The Lord himself performs a miracle of forgiveness. If sinners would believe on Jesus Christ as we have done. We can authoritatively declare to them that their sins have been forgiven. If a person that you're speaking to. You know if you tell them if you will receive the Lord if you will do what the scripture says confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Romans chapter 10 confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you shall be saved and if we know that they do that and we see it in their life what can we say but that the fact is that they're forgiven but we aren't the ones who provide forgiveness and likewise, if a person rejects Jesus' sacrifice, then a believer can announce or declare that that person is not forgiven. Don't forget what Jesus had taught them. "If You shall know them by their fruit. They might look like a pretty fruit on the outside, but inside, you know, it's, it's rotten. We don't judge them and make them <clears throat> what they're not, because you know, only God knows their hearts. But whatever their fruit is, or if they just say outright, you know, I reject the gospel. There are a lot of people that do that today. I reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then a believer can announce or declare that that person is not forgiven. You're not retaining their forgiveness. You're just saying that they're not forgiven. We can say of ourselves at a certain point in our lives, when we were living a rotten, stinky, earthly life, that we were not forgiven. Until we came to Jesus, I want you to consider the, the, those uh, those who brought a man to Jesus. You all remember the the four friends of this one man that you know they, was crippled, and they they wanted to get him to Jesus, but Jesus was was in a house there in Capernaum, and there were so many people around they couldn't get to. So they went up on the roof and they laid him. You know they brought him through the roof. They tore off the you know uh, the roof, and then they they brought you know they brought the man in to to Jesus. So. Uh, Y'all remember, let me pick up on on that. Mark 2, verse 5. Got to do this quick because I'm running out of time. Mark 2, verse 5 says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Hey, they just said something right, didn't they? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven? Or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? What's easier to say? What's easier to do? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on, on this fashion. We've never seen anything like this. What's easier to do or to say? Your sins be forgiven? Anybody can say that, right? But you can't prove it, can you? Or arise and take up your bed. What's easier to do? What's easier to say? Let me close with this little story. There's a story told of a a dying woman who had been raised a Roman Catholic but who had for many years known Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior and who had long since left off going to confession and doing penance and attending that church. Instead, though, she studied her Bible and gathered with those of like faith. And when she was on her deathbed, some well-meaning relatives sent the parish priest around to see her. He offered to her, uh, he offered to hear her confession and grant her absolution. The woman said to the priests, "Or I'm sorry, to the priest. The woman said to the priest, show me your hands. The priest extended his hands. The woman examined them. Then she turned to the priest and said, You are an imposter, sir. The one who forgives my sins has nail prints in his hands. You see, folks, there's only one who forgives sins. That's God himself. The Son of Man, the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus alone forgives sins. That's why we must come to Jesus. Not to a church, not to a denomination. We must come to Jesus Christ. But those of us who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, when a person truly gives his heart to the Lord, when when a person truly weeps in repentance before God, all we can say is, the lord if indeed your heart is changed and you have a new heart and a new mind then god has forgiven you he has forgiven you and we can declare that and folks realize this when you give your testimony you declare it every day i'm forgiven not by the things i've done nor the things that i do i'm forgiven because I believed in what Christ did for me. I have confessed with, a, with my mouth. Folks, when you confess with your mouth, you're confessing publicly, not just to yourself. Don't, t- don't, don't take this idea like some of the people who say, well, you know, I worship God in my own way. Well, that's just sin. Because the Lord never said that that's how we're to worship. We're to worship him obediently in spirit and in truth. And that... with believers. We give testimony. Our being here today is our testimony that we believe in Jesus Christ. And I would say that of most of you, and I would hope all of you. But again, only God knows our hearts. So if you've never prayed to accept the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, never prayed to receive the blessings of Christ or never prayed in confession to Jesus Christ, today would be a great day to do that. And you would leave here changed. And the declaration would be if you have laid your sins out before the Lord and you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart not only will you be saved but you are forgiven. And we need that forgiveness, don't we? I don't want to carry a burden of sins around every day. Who does? It doesn't make me pure, but I pray for the pureness, the pureness of heart that every day I will be like Jesus. I want to be like the Lord. I want to do the things that honor him. I want you to do the things that honor Jesus. And isn't it great to know that he is our intercessor and he prays for us. Because he loves us that much. That he gave his life for us. And he took it back again. Just to prove that he has the power. Amen.